Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. And just pray for us really quick as we get going. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that your light would shine in the darkness as it did in the beginning that the Spirit would create this morning through the power of your word. We ask this for your name's sake and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, the children's book, The Horse and His Boy, is about a little boy named Shasta who grows up basically as a slave in this really cold, awful house. And the man who is his guardian, whom he thinks might be his father, is really cruel and he's harsh and his existence is pretty hopeless. But what the little boy doesn't know is that he's actually a prince from this beautiful far off kingdom far away. And he got to where he was because as a little baby, he was kidnapped. And this guy who's his guardian, who's not his father, had been keeping the true history of his past about who he was. He has been withholding that from him, this boy, so that he didn't find out in order to kind of keep control over him. Because the boy had no other reason to believe otherwise, um, he just believed that his life was resigned to be enslaved and cold and pretty miserable. But of course, the book is about him gradually coming to understand and know his, tr his true identity and who he really was and his true past. Can you imagine? Uh, there's so many stories like this that have that theme of somebody who doesn't know where they come from. They kind of grow into this understanding of where they come from. Can you imagine what that would have been like for a little boy? I'm a prince. My dad's the king. I don't have to live in forced labor my whole life. Your knowledge of the past, of who you are and where you come from is one of the most powerful and influential things about you. It helps you understand and find meaning in the present, um, why you are the way you are, why the world is the way the world is, and it also helps you understand your future. So what is available to you in the rest of your life, where you're headed, what your capacity is in the future. And this is true for individuals. Think of your family history or your inherited legacy of your family, but it's also true for communities, for nations or organizations. Uh, every politician stumps on a version of the past. And so they're going to be talking about what the past is in order for them to tell you what they're going to do in the future. When we have a newcomer's dinner at our church, uh, which most of you who are a part of our community have been to, you come over, we eat lasagna at my family's house, and then we sit down. And in order to talk about who we are and where we're going, we talk about our origin story. This is where Christ Church came from. This is what our vision was. This is where we felt like we were called to do. This is what God gave us to do in the, in the city of Madison. And if that's true for organizations and communities and individuals, it is also true of the entire human race. What are we? Where do we come from? What's wrong with the world? What are we here for? Not much has more influential power than the answers to those questions about our collective human past. And because of that, the past has been and is always fought over. 
fiercely, sometimes with words, sometimes with swords. I love the famous quote from George Orwell's 1984, um, which says, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. This all means that there are and have always been multiple competing versions about our human past, about our origins. And the majority of them have been wrong. Some of them have been perpetuated by people. Again, think of George Orwell. Controlling the past allows you to control the future. So it's like the garden, the guardian in The Horse and His Boy withholding that true information. Um, but also we believe that there are spiritual forces in this world who also love to obscure our origins. Remember, the Bible teaches us that our battle is not just against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces. The ancient world was full of creation myths, especially the ancient Near East where uh, the Old Testament comes out of, full of creation myths. And there, there are certainly common themes, but they're all over the place. And today, our world is still full of creation myths. I mean, I'm sure you have some questions about these big ideas about where we come from, but my hunch is you have at least some understanding of our humanity, about our collective common past. And that's because we're constantly being taught the past, whether it's by politicians or scientists or spiritual gurus or preachers or whatever. Don't think we're more enlightened than the ancient people that we have this figured out. We do not. In the midst of all that, the book of Genesis barges into this world of competing histories like a divine manifesto. And it cries out with all the authority and glory of the revelation of God. And it comes into your life, not in order to suppress you or to control you like the guardian in the horse and his boy, but rather to free you, to liberate you. Genesis comes to answer those questions, to clarify what has been obscured and twisted. When Genesis first came out, it was an utter critique of all its contemporary stories. Genesis single-handedly revolutionized the way that people thought about themselves and our humanity and the world and God. And that was in the ancient world. And today it remains just as fresh, just as dignifying, and just as revolutionary. So as we study Genesis over the next two summers, I want you to keep this idea in mind that Genesis is in competition. It's a manifesto. It's trying to cut through the fog of ideas in order to reconnect you to your human past and to God himself. And we begin in the beginning with creation in Genesis 1. Um, there are so many things to say about this amazing passage, but I wanna take out three things uh, that I think Genesis 1 is saying pretty clearly and which ring out like a manifesto over against ancient and modern understandings of our past. So three things that kind of rhyme, they're very similar, and hopefully they'll be easy to note, take, or write down. Number one, there's a person behind creation. There's a person behind creation. Genesis teaches us that there is one personal and good God behind creation who was and still is intimately involved in creation. 
just to put this in kind of opposition to some of the other ideas out there. In the ancient world, there were tons of gods. Um, they fought and killed each other. There's a couple of them that you can read that are really famous, but they fought and killed each other. They had competitions with each other. Some of them were capricious or they were lovers or they were jilted lovers. And out of all this bloodshed and drama and bodily fluid comes the world, literally. And there were big gods and there were little gods and they were fighting for who could get to the top. And sometimes they were connected to creation. So if the sun comes into existence, then the God of the sun comes to existence. Now today, that's not typically what we are all carrying around. Typically we view our past as having no God, I think is probably the most common behind the work of creation. Or there is a God, but they're kind of nameless and distant. Uh, like they did creation somehow and then they kind of went to sleep and have been out of touch. Or maybe common, and for many of our circles today, there's kind of a spiritual dimension to the world, but it's not personal. It's more like the force. It's like a divine flow that you can tap into through a bunch of different ways, but it's not personal. Genesis, uh, if you were watching that beautiful uh, reenactment of Genesis 1 and reading along with it, just tells an utterly different story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's one God and he creates here so freely and joyfully, simply by the word of his mouth. There's no cosmic bloodshed or love affairs. There's no competition or primal struggle, just the word spoken freely out of God's divine will and joy. And did you notice how intimately involved he is in creation? He's speaking with his creation. He's acknowledging that it's good after every day. He's deeply involved. It's such an intimate picture of creation. The horse and his boy concludes not just with the boy learning that he was from a different country, which would be enough to be amazing, um, which answers the where he comes from question, but it ends with him actually getting to meet his father in the flesh, who he comes from. And this is true for our rediscovery of our own spiritual journey of rediscovering our human past. When we begin to hear the scriptures speak, we don't just learn our world comes from a creator. We actually learn that we were meant to know and walk with our creator. So there's one personal good God behind our world who was and is intimately involved in creation. That's number one. There's a person behind creation. Number two, one of the things we see from this amazing passage is that there's an order to creation. Um, the great cosmic struggle in the ancient world, to go back to kind of ideas in the ancient Near East, was between chaos and order. Chaos is unpredictable. Therefore, it's destructive. It breeds fear and insecurity. For the ancients, chaos was most represented by the sea and by the great mythical sea monsters. So if you've ever read the Bible, think of like Leviathan um, represents a chaos monster. And if you're like, I've never read ancient Near Eastern literature, you get this. If you've ever been in a lake, but mainly the ocean, and you've gone a little bit too far and your feet get off the bottom and you feel a riptide or you feel something big come up against your leg and you can't see far enough to see down what it was and you're filled with fear that the sea is bigger than you, that things in the sea can own you. That is the feeling of chaos. The opposite of that is order. Order's beautiful. It's predictable, it's stable, it's secure, it's safe and therefore good. So 
as a picture of this, think of the previous chaos feeling or like if you're shipwrecked and you're in storms and there's sharks and it's just crazy. And then you're rescued and you wake up in your home and you're dry and there's wonderful pillows and somebody brings you a cup of coffee whom you love and the sun comes out and the birds are chirping and everything is as it should be again. That's order. It's a feeling of order. And this tension between chaos and order is one of the great dynamic themes of all scripture. And it really is the key to understanding Genesis 1. Genesis 1 shows us how God takes a chaotic world and brings it by the power of his word into a beautiful and inhabitable order. Okay, our generation gets super caught up in the debate between science and faith. So I'm not going to talk about this long, but I have to touch on it. And it has to do with this. Both scientists and Christians misunderstand Genesis when we look to it as a science textbook. Because that's not what it was trying to be when it was written. It's also not what it's trying to be today. It's simply a misunderstanding of genre. And I think the simplest, briefest way I can explain what I think Genesis is trying to do is to talk about the difference between a house story and a home story. A house story is about materials coming together to build the house. So think like wood was grown in this forest and then it was milled by this lumber company and then it was taken here and it was cut into a two by four and shipped to this person. And then a guy with these types of nails, which were created in this factory, were put into that to frame the house and you get the picture. A home story is the building of a house, yes, but it's also the story about how a house becomes a home which goes beyond material things in its significance and beauty. It's about people. It's about purpose. So think about when you hear somebody tell the story of how your grandpa built his house with his bare hands. And sadly, my kids will never probably be able to say that about me nor my grandchildren. Uh, And maybe that's a a story we can less often tell, but Marissa and I can tell those stories. And uh, when you hear somebody talk about that, my grandpa built this house, you usually don't hear them tell the house story, which would be like, well, my grandpa bought these nails in this box. I think it was a hundred count that came from this store and this is how they were made. And then he took this and he used this particular type of wood and did all this stuff and get into the nitty gritty of the materials. You'd be like, what are you telling me? But what you usually hear is grandpa chose the spot and he built it with his bare hands and he built it for his wife, exactly the way she wanted it. He put all his love and sweat and tears into creating it and then he carried grandma across the threshold and he raised my family there. That's where my dad, my mom was raised and that that house still exists. That's the home story. Put the paintings on the walls, put everything in its right place so that my family history could have its deep memory in this home. Now, of course, the Bible is crystal clear that God created everything. Everything comes from him. I think Genesis 1 affirms that, and the rest of scripture is super clear about that. But Genesis 1 is not trying to tell you the house story, if that makes sense. It's not trying to tell you the material, uh, molecular level stuff about how the world came to be. Genesis 1 is telling us the home story. How God brought order out of chaos to make a space, a world that was inhabitable to be our dwelling place and his. The key to understanding this is the first verse. So if you've got your Bible, you probably don't need your Bible because you probably know this first verse, um, the first couple of verses, I should say. But it says this. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for deep there uh, basically means the primordial waters of chaos, which is a great heavy metal band name, by the way. But think like scary, untamed uh, chaos sludge, just this massive, terrifying orderlessness. And the two key descriptors to understand that is right there in the Bible in verse two, and that is formless, without form, and void or empty. So in other words, it has no shape and it's not full of anything. Think of like just a mass of materials that could potentially turn into a house one day, but they're not there yet. And now guess what God is going to do to this formless and empty universe? He's going to form it, shape it, and he does that in days one to three. And then he's going to fill it, which is days four to six. This this, uh, chapter is so stylized and structured. It's beautiful. So let's just walk through it really quick. Day one, God forms time by separating light from dark, day from night. Think of in that movie, the and the ding for evening and morning. Day two, God forms weather because he separates the sea from the sky. Day three, God forms agriculture by separating the sea from the dry earth, which sprouts vegetation. So even at there, after three days, it's good. It's starting to take shape and form. It's starting to be ordered. And then in days four to six, God fills what he's just formed. It's pretty amazing. Day four corresponds to day one. I really wish I had a a whiteboard because it would be so much easier if I could draw pictures here. Just didn't have time to do it. But day four corresponds directly to day one because he fills the day with the sun and the night with the moon and the stars. Day five corresponds to day two because he fills the sea with fish. And what does he fill the sky with to my people who are here? Birds. And then guess what he does on the sixth day? He fills the earth with animals and then the jewel and the crown of creation, you, me, us. How amazing is that? At the beginning, it was just this primordial chaotic sludge. And at the end, everything is so beautifully and clearly structured and full and teeming with life. This is the story of God creating the world and bringing it into order like a home for us and for himself. And guess what the climax of creation is? It makes utter sense with the rest of this on day seven. Day seven is God crossing the threshold into the home to rest. It's him coming to dwell and inhabit in the house that he's just ordered and created and perfectly prepared to be inhabited. And behold, it was very good. And all of it, this order, creates the perfect place for humans to exist. This is just astonishing. Um, From the distance of the earth to the sun, to the ways the trees emit oxygen, to the days and seasons and like the temperatures that exist on earth, there is no other inhabitable home for us, even though we might colonize Mars. But Mars is nowhere near as cool as earth. It's not half as good. (laughs) The earth is perfect for humans to exist on. Absolutely perfect in our known universe. And Genesis 1 says that's not an accident. That's a gift from God. And the goal 
for all of this is the exact same as it was for grandpa when grandpa built the house. And that is to raise the family. Number three, there's a purpose for creation. This is where it just starts getting better and better and better. Genesis, doesn't, Genesis 1 doesn't just answer the who question and how it was ordered, who is behind question, how was it ordered. It also teaches us the why God created the heavens and the earth, including us. And again, this is where this text is going beyond history or science into theological manifesto. This is the great why of our existence. And everyone has always taken a crack at the why question. Um, in the ancient world, it's really hilarious. All the mythologies kind of revolve around this idea that the gods were either needed a break from like keeping up the world, and then they basically create humans as slave or labor. Or some of them are hungry and they're literally like, we need some food. Who's gonna like do stuff for us so that we can eat? And then they created humanity. There's Shasta in the horse and his boy. Well, I guess I'm just slave labor. Today, honestly, I think we're clueless. There's no consensus or authoritative teaching as to our human why. I have a lot of really smart friends who aren't Christians, and they have told me many times how jealous they are that I have an answer to that question. They're like, of course, I don't agree with it, but I utterly wish I did too. We have no answer to the why. And that is one of the fundamental problems with our human and cultural anthropology. We have lost an understanding of why. And into that confusion, Genesis 1 speaks like a beacon in the dark. If you've got your Bible, look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God creates humanity, male and female, in the image of God. In Latin, that is the Imago Dei, which sounds way cooler than image of God. So I'm going to say Imago Dei from now on. No other creature in creation possesses the Imago Dei. And the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the key to your purpose. If you're listening right now and you have not ever really met Jesus or really been introduced to your past, it is my joy to get to tell you that you bear the image of God. What does that mean? The Imago Dei in us, most simply put, is our capacity to reflect the attributes of God and to act on his behalf. So if you think of reflect and act. So first, in, in creation, humanity alone has the capacity to reflect God's character. And by that, I'm talking about love, faithfulness, wisdom, justice, self-giving, but also, secondly, the Imago Dei is that capacity to act on his behalf. And it's clear in this story that humans alone are created, not as slaves. But do you see what Genesis is saying? It's actually the opposite. Humans are created as ambassadors or like vice regents or representatives of God himself on earth. And as such, God gives uh, humanity dominion over the earth. What a beautiful word. He creates us to rule over it. 
and steward it. Not greedily, but with love and justice like God. And not only that, it just gets better. Because what's cool is God created us to be co-orderers, is maybe the word I would say, to continue God's work of forming and filling. So when God created, he didn't finish everything. He left so much for humans to do. Look at verse 28. I should just hold my Bible in my hand so I don't have to keep picking it up. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is basically God saying, I have created the world and brought it into inhabitable order. But look, I've left so much of it open, like a blank canvas for you to have the joy with me of shaping and fashioning and filling yourself. Thus all procreation, creativity, art, enterprise, exploration, scientific and philosophical study, engineering, cooking, writing, whatever else. Give me something else. Riding motorcycles. motorcycles. Innovation. Innovation. All of it comes back to this. There's a reason I love G.K. Chesterton talks about this. Uh, He's a famous guy from the 19th century. He says, you know, the difference in our humanity talking about this, he says, squirrels don't have guilds for the arts. Only, (laughs) only humans do. (laughs) My bunnies in my backyard are not contemplating astrophysics. (laughs) The reason for that is the Imago Dei. It's part of our role. Likewise, all concepts of basic human dignity come back to this because we alone bear the Imago Dei. This is why our current conversations around race and George Floyd and everything we've been talking about, central to this is Genesis 1. The civil rights movement in so many ways is built upon Genesis 1. Our concepts in American freedom and dignity and democracy are rooted in some ways in Genesis 1. The Imago Dei is not in a particular color person or a particular nation. It's not in a particular gender. It's not in a particular leader. It doesn't leave you if you have a criminal record. Everyone has been endowed with the dignity of the Imago Dei to reflect God's being and to act on his behalf, no matter what your role is, no matter what your station is is in life. So it's your character and your virtue is tied to your created purpose and your work and your vocation is tied to your created purpose. How amazing is that? So in some ways, if you think about it, humanity was created for the world. Um, There's a real beautiful stewardship piece to this. God made us to keep the world and to steward it. All of environmentalism comes from Genesis 1-2. But also, do you see how in some ways the world is for humanity? It's kind of a gift that God gives to us to fill and to form and to shape and to flourish in for food, for everything else. But then, of course, as you read Genesis 1, you see that both creation and the world is all for God. He, too, creates it in order to walk, to cross the threshold into his creation and inhabit and dwell. He creates it to fill with his glory, as the prophet Isaiah says, as waters cover the sea. Hallelujah. So what's the manifesto that Genesis proclaims into our confusion about our past? Obviously, so much to be said here. 
so many other conversation, but here's a start. There's a person behind creation. There's an order to creation. And there's a purpose for creation. What an astonishing vision of the world. What a revelation. Hearing this is like Shasta discovering that his life is not meaningless, but that he's a somebody who comes from someone and has a deep purpose in his life, a deep calling in his life. This is your past. This is your birthright. If you have never been to a church service ever or ever picked up a Bible, you need to know this is not just about religious people. Genesis 1 is saying this is about all people. This is your past. But here's the kicker. My hunch is that some of you are thinking, especially if you are new to Christianity, that seems beautiful and good, but it's too good to be true. None of that lines up with my current experience. It's 2020. You see, we don't always experience the intimacy with our creator God. But rather the world, I think, sometimes feels like this vacuous, unpersonable, maybe even sinister, empty space. We feel the void of creation, not the personality, the person behind creation. We don't always experience the world as beautifully ordered. But rather, maybe chaos rings more true to your experience. Nature, red and tooth and claw. And we live in fear. Coronavirus and George Floyd and the riots right now are not examples of order. They are examples of the opposite, of chaos. We don't always experience the dignity and purpose of our personhood. But rather, we feel small, worthless, insignificant. This is because, even though this is true about the beginning, the Bible doesn't end here. It's not the only, it's not the whole story. And in three weeks, we're going to read, or sorry, two weeks, we're going to read Genesis 3, which is about the fall and the effects of sin. And the Bible teaches that it is sin which contorts and twists and obscures our experience of all three of these created things. It distances us from God. It unleashes chaos in our life. If you think about your family history, you think about the things that have brought most chaos are the results of sin. It obscures our God-given purpose. And because of that, reading Genesis 1, if we are honest with ourselves, could quickly go from joy to despair. In the sense that we would read it and think, well, yeah, that's great, but we're not eating anymore. Welcome to 2020. But this is where the gospel comes in. This is why we call ourselves Christians. Because if you keep on reading from Genesis 1, you eventually get to John 1. And John 1 says this about Jesus Christ, a real person who lived 2,000 years ago. In the beginning, you hear that? Was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word through which the world was created at the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. The gospel of Jesus is that God himself, this person behind creation, 
stepped into his creation. Why? To reconnect us to God himself. To reorder what had become chaos in our lives. To reinstate our calling and our dignity as image bearers of the one true living God. Both in our character and our virtue and in our vocations, in our work and in our roles in life. That's why the Bible says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. <laughs> Hallelujah. Second Corinthians, what Ben read today says, for God who said, quote, quoting Genesis one, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Hearing the news of your past is one thing. Reclaiming your past is a completely different story. It was one thing for the boy and the horse and his boy to learn that he was from a far off country. That was the first step, but that was one thing. It was another for him to get out of slavery and back into freedom and meet his father. Does your life feel impersonal and chaotic? Do you struggle understanding your own significance and purpose as a human? Have all other competing views of the world never fully been able to make sense of your body, of your sexuality, of your mind, of the longings of your heart, of the laws of gravity, the order of the seasons, the migration of birds, love, why music makes you want to dance so much when you hear it. You were created by a personal God who wants to know you. You were created for order, for beauty, for life. You were created with a purpose. But listen, the only way you can recover and live into those things is through Jesus, the word who was at the beginning and has come back to do the work of new creation in you. And just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation, notice he's right there in verse two. God's spirit today hovers over us, has been sent in order to hover anew over chaos. And with the invitation of faith, the Holy Spirit is ready to begin the ministry of new creation, which Jesus came to do. I love our gospel story of Gerasene Demoniac, which Kent read, because it's my favorite example of new creation. The man in the story, if you remember, is full of darkness and chaos. His life is untamable. He's full of demons. And guess where he lives by? The sea. His dwelling is almost in chaos. He's disconnected from his God. And instead of being a, a person who is stewarding and caring for a world, the darkness inside him has actually turned him to become a vehicle for destruction. And what happens? Jesus comes into his life. And I love that Jesus comes off the sea towards this man. 
and he, he casts out the darkness immediately. Notice he sends the demons into the pigs and where do the pigs go? Into the sea. He reshapes the man's life. He fills what had been full of chaos with light and order and peace and intimacy again. He takes utter control and authority over this man's life. And Luke is clear to say that at the end of it, the man is clothed and in his right mind. What was once chaos is now beautiful and ordered and peace. And he's in relationship again with God himself and Jesus. And how did Jesus accomplish this work in the man's life? Just the same way God did at the beginning of things, just by speaking. So the ministry of Jesus is cosmic and primal. It's a ministry of light and authority and a reordering. It is the ministry of the creator coming back to his creation. But it is such a personal and intimate ministry. It's an individual ministry. Yes, God cares about his whole creation, but he also cares about you as an image bearer in his creation. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I really wish that we were worshiping in a church right now where we could have an extended time of worship and prayer into this, but I wanna encourage you, particularly if you are feeling these things and you want the new creation, new ministry of Jesus. I wanna encourage you to pray with me in a second, reach out to me. Also on our live stream page, there is a list of people who would love to pray with you. They're trained prayer ministers in our church. And just call one of them. They're awesome people. It's confidential. And you can just say, I want that. Can you help pray with me? There's nothing weird about it. It's just another image bearer praying for you. That the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Jesus would start to rekindle the Imago Dei in you and restore who you were called to be to God himself. This is what our church is doing. This is what the gospel is all about. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, if there's anyone listening right now who in particular feels the darkness and the chaos of life and so longs for light to shine in their hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to reconnect them to you, to reorder what has become chaos, and to reestablish purpose and meaning which you gave them as their birthright heavenly father i pray that you would come into their hearts right now and begin a new work new creation is a process just like creation was a process but lord would you plant new seeds and would people find life in repenting and believing in the gospel this morning would you plant a new seed of new creation that would flourish over the next season in the midst of the chaos of 2020. Lord, we pray that in Christchurch Madison, in our community, there would be a new work, a new thing. God, there is so much in us that still remains to be ordered and breathed into by you. And oh Lord, we, we long for that. We're willing. We want you to come in and speak light into the darkness. 
and all God's people said, 